Today, I'm speaking to Fran Stallings, who's joining me from Oklahoma. I met Fran through the Earth Up Festival that she co-organized through the National Storytelling Network in April of 2021. Earth Up 2021 was a fabulous event bringing together storytellers from around the world who have a passion for using their craft to help reconnect people to the rest of the natural world and bring about change in relation to sustainability. Fran has had a twin interest in stories and biology since she was quite a young person. She has had a long, illustrious and international career as a professional storyteller and a trainer of storytelling. She writes the Earth Teller Tales column, which is available on her blog, as well as through Environmentor from the Oklahoma City University. I could go on as Fran has so many interesting credits to her name, but I think I'd better start the interview and let her tell me about these things in her own words. So welcome, Fran. Thank you, Alette. I'm so glad to be here. So I'd like to start by asking how you became interested in bringing together the worlds of story and biology. Well, as you said, I've always been interested in both since I was a little kid. And I grew up hearing stories as a way of explaining anything that was going on. Um, so when I taught university biology at Kent State University and University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, uh, I used stories as part of my lectures for the undergraduate courses. And when we moved to Oklahoma and there was no university position available nearby and I was raising small children and uh, I got into volunteering at the schools, realized that storytelling was really valuable as a, a teaching thing for, for schools, as well as language arts, other subjects, history and others could be incorporated in the stories. And after a number of years, my colleague Lynn Maroney in Oklahoma City, uh, known as Sky Teller, she is Chickasaw Indian and the world's expert in international star lore. She and I were talking about how we wanted really to train more teachers to do it themselves. And so we got to working together as earth and sky storytellers. We did residencies in schools. She's retired now, but I'm still earth teller. And uh, I hope that the National Science Foundation doesn't regret all the years they put into my PhD because I am still doing something for science, even if it isn't in the lab. Thank you. And what insights came out of bringing these two worlds together? Well, for one thing, people pay attention to a story. When you start to tell a personal anecdote or when you say once there was a something like that people people get into a different mode it's almost as though a hatch opens in the top of their head and they listen differently and you have a kind of privileged access to their to their minds i think uh stories tend to be memorable and so information that is slipped in to the story tends to stick and uh, i noticed that Sometimes uh, a year or two after I had taught a course, a, a student, a former student would come up and say that they didn't remember the Krebs cycle or photosynthesis 
biochemistry, but they did remember the story. And I thought, hmm, there's something here. And can I ask what sorts of stories you work with in this context? Are you working with folk tales or are you devising new stories? Whatever. <laughs> whatever, whatever I need. Sometimes I need to story scientific information. I need to take a narrative of how something was discovered or, or how it works and tell it like a story. And in this way, I work with um, oh, park rangers and in, uh, interpreters and with scientists, helping them learn how to get their information across in a away so it slides in easily. Um, sometimes there are uh, experience narratives of my own or uh, secondhand relating how, how somebody found something or, or experienced something. Um, and especially when working with kids, a folktale is a very good way to introduce a topic. And particularly if it's outlandish, like all those stories about how animals lost their long tails and ended up with short ones. Obviously, that isn't how it worked, as one little six-year-old in the front row said, okay, that explains one rabbit. What about the rest of them? Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think really happened? And so you can then take an entry into a more scientific explanation about, about genes and adaptation and so forth. Um, but you've introduced something like why animals have stripes or, or spots or something like that. Next time they see that animal, maybe they'll be reminded of the story. Uh, there are cautionary tales. Um, there's a, a wild plant that a, a native plant that lives here in Oklahoma, sometimes called creeping cucumber. It's a, like a cucumber vine, except extremely fine and, and grassal. My husband calls it thread vine. And it has tiny fruits the size of grapes. When they are green, they taste like a sweet, crispy, cool cucumber. They're delicious. But when they get ripe and black and soft, they will turn your insides inside out. And there is a traditional Plains narrative about Coyote seeing a fruit on a vine and saying he was going to pick it. And the vine said, you better not. Oh, those black ones, they look so good. No, 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 you'll be sorry. And the results for Coyote's digestion were described very graphically, very, very uh, amusing to third and fourth grade boys in particular. But once you've heard that story, if it was told to you when you can see the vine, you remember. So what role can story and storytelling play in efforts to address the several environmental crises we're facing? I have a, a rubric. I say aware, care, dare. We're not going to dare to take any kind of action, especially if it's inconvenient, unless we care about the difference it might make. And we don't care about what's happening in the natural world unless, well, first we know that it's out there and then we care about what it means to either fellow humans or fellow creatures. The stories are excellent in transmitting information that you should be aware of and they can make you care about the creatures 
and about the people who were impacted. You also can tell stories about people who have dared to take action, whether it's biography like telling about Rachel Carson or about the actual tree huggers in India long ago, uh, or, or the woman who sat in the top of a redwood tree to keep it from being cut down. Um, you can tell factual narratives about uh, kids your age who are cleaning up rivers and things like that. Um, but first you need the awareness and then stories are important to help people care about things. That's, that's what stories do. They're about relationship. So are there different stories that work with different parts of that rubric or do you see most stories working across all three areas of the rubric? Well, certainly the aware stories are important for just getting across basic information. Um, I, I talk sometimes about stealth eco-telling and some stories like, for instance, the story about uh, King Midas and the Golden Touch, obviously fictional, as far as we know, no one has learned to transmute elements in the quantity that he did. But in addition to being um, a kind of a, a moral of the story, just because a little is good, more is not better uh, kind of, of story, it makes you aware of how much he, he really did appreciate the value of gold and he really did want more and he really didn't think it through. Uh, unintended consequences, so many stories of unintended consequences that may not be scientifically accurate, but it does get across the point that, whoops, maybe we better think a little before we go ahead and try to cool the atmosphere by blowing sulfur dioxide up in, into the stratosphere or whatever. So there is awareness that can be either metaphorical, as in the, the stealth storytelling, or uh, stories that are, um, for, for younger people, the, the origin, supposed origin stories, explaining how something got to be the way it is, or stories in which you describe animals behaving like animals. I think Goldilocks and the Three Bears does not count as an environmental story, although it does have bears in it. And then you can take stories and you can tweak them a little bit. I tell a version of Three Billy Goats Gruff, which I, I grew up with. You know, we, we loved acting out that story using our parents' car, uh, coffee table as a bridge. But it, it bothered me when I became an adult that these goats were the heroes of a story with, that was about, about uh, environmental destruction. They had denuded their hill. It, it was uh, a wasteland because they'd eaten it down to the roots. And so they wanted to go to another one. And so in my story, the troll under the bridge is actually a park ranger who uh, comes out and shoots the, the goats with uh, one of those anesthetic dart guns and carries them off to a happy ever after where they are kept with electric fences to eat the brush from under the power lines instead of using a defoliant. <laughs> well, the story's a little, little more fun than the description I've given you, but 
I can use the story to describe how the goats actually ate right down to the roots and how it was nothing but rocks and gravel by the time they were through and, and put in that information but also at the end describe how goats really, they, they prefer browse to grass and you can in some places actually rent a herd of goats to eat the poison ivy from under your, under your woodlot. So they are good guys after all, as long as they're under control. So that's, that's kind of aware and I, I hope you care about the goats as well as caring about the park ranger. And then you might dare to think, well, I don't know, you have an opportunity to actually work with goats, but you might understand why they're being used that way now. I love that example. That will stick with me. <laughs> the three billy goats gruff eating the, the brows under the high tension wires. I like that image. Great. So you've worked on a number of projects and I've mentioned a few of them. Can you tell me a bit about some uh, recent projects that you're working on or you've worked on that um, are working with story in, in the ways that you've been describing so far? Well, I've had the privilege of teaching a lot of workshops um, on environmental storytelling, on stealth eco-telling, uh, when, when I do the one on aware, care, dare, I also try to emphasize the importance of avoiding the uh, ain't it awful kind of stories. There are so many stories that people consider valid environmental stories that are about how we are destroying everything and, and doom awaits us. And that's not a really good way to motivate people. Because when you think about it, the message is, well, you may as well go out and buy a six pack or something because it's all over anyway. And uh, climate anxiety is the term that's being used now because some young people, once they're aware of what may lie in wait for us in another 20 or 30 years, uh, you can't blame them for feeling depressed. But as Greta Thunberg said, once you uh, let's see, she said, what about hope? Someone asked her and she said, once you start taking action, hope is everywhere. I don't have that verbatim in front of me, but it's, it's from one of her speeches a few years ago. And so it's important to give examples of action that can be taken because otherwise, what do you do except lie on the floor with your feet in the air? You're hosting something called Climate Conversations for a group called Artists Standing Together. Can you tell me and the audience a bit more about those and how, how that project came about and what you're seeing come out of it? Uh, Sheila Arnold is the artistic director for Artists Standing Strong Together. And she was concerned about the climate crisis that's coming at us and she isn't excellent and experienced storyteller, but she realized she didn't have the science background and it doesn't really help us to tell stories that are scientifically misleading, inaccurate, etc. And so she contacted some of us from EarthUp about doing, doing something where we could bring scientists and storytellers together because 
we wanted to get the scientists to brief us on the science background of different sub-issues of the, the climate crisis, but also we wanted to help the scientists see how story could help them to improve communicating their message and how uh, traditional stories and others could help. And so each one of the climate conversations, we started in January and we we were monthly, we skipped April because that was the month of Earth Up, and then May, June, July, and August, and September, but um, from now on we'll be going every two months, uh, so we'll skip to November and so forth. Each one has had some specialized scientists doing a, a good presentation that would brief us on the information we need, and then some storytellers of different genres historical reenactment. So we've had Rachel Carson and Wang Wangari Matai, the uh, African uh, Greenbelt uh, Nobel Prize winner. Wednesday we'll have Charles Darwin talking about seeing a, a, um, a bios, biodiversity site destroyed when a volcano exploded and talk about what was lost. So we have that, that genre. We have some personal narrative. We often have a young person who has, for instance, become fascinated with scuba diving and went back to a beautiful coral reef and found that it had bleached because of the water warming and is now working to replant corals. Uh, so we have personal narratives from people who are involved in taking an action. And we also have the folk tales that can be used. Uh, for instance, this, this uh, September program will be about biodiversity and we will have Kevin Strauss telling uh, a myth from Finland about the importance of wolves in maintaining a balance. And we'll have Judith Black telling that African folk tale everything is connected about the frogs and the chief who wanted to wipe out the frogs because they were keeping him awake at night. And so those, those stories will demonstrate ways that traditional stories can be used. What are some tips or insights you can share to someone who wants to work with stories in a similar way to what you've been talking about? Well, it's always good to research a story before you start telling it. Try to find more than one traditional source if it if it is a traditional story if it has some natural science in it it's good to do a little background checking on that too and find out how it works some of my friends were were fascinated with the book freddie the leaf and they thought it was just so so lovely that the new leaves push the old leaves off no that isn't how it works because, you know, if you tell a story like that, you are inculcating this information. And there's a, a much nicer, I think, metaphor in leaves in that when the leaf is first made, it has an abscission layer that's part of its structure. That is a breakaway point that it has from the very beginning. It's ready to knock itself loose when the time comes. And there are, you know, hormonal signals and la la, bay length, etc. But I think the, the idea that the leaf knows that its time is limited and it's ready is a much more powerful story. 
<laughs> so do try to research the natural history behind something before you go about spreading misinformation. And bears do not live in cottages and eat porridge for breakfast. No, they don't. I always finish with what gives you hope today? One thing that gives me hope is that so many people are now actually paying attention. They are no longer denying that the climate is changing. So many people are no longer denying that humans are at the at the root of this, causing this. How to get us out of this is going to be very tricky because we've already got enough CO2 in the atmosphere now. If we stopped artificially adding to it right now, we would still see quite a bit of warming just from the CO2 that's there already. And so we have to prepare ourselves. Uh, we need a Winston Churchill to to say, look, uh, it's going to be, this is going to be hard, but we can do it. Keep calm and, and soldier on here. Uh, we can do it, especially if, for Pete's sake, we get started. And so I'm, I have great hope that people are paying attention now and starting to ask for, uh, for solutions. I, I've been telling stories and songs for a green, green earth as a program for schools. I started that in the late 80s, guys. And for a while, there was quite a lot of interest among schools. And then it became a politically dicey issue. And nobody would hire me for that. And I began to wonder what I could do. That's why I started looking at, at just training people and passing on stories and especially the stealth eco-telling to get some of the ideas across, even if it wasn't blatantly about the climate or the species. And so I'm very encouraged that more and more people, more things such as your blog series, internationally there are other groups that are using the arts of arts of all kinds to help communicate information and uh, suggest actions to deal with the climate crisis. That gives me a lot of hope. Thank you. And before um, I close this interview, I know that you are just in the beginning stages of planning Earth Up 2022. Do you want to say a few words about that and it will be what's in store for us, all those sorts of things? Yes, thank you. Uh, Earth Up 2022 will be April 8th through 10th. It will be virtual again so that people don't have to spew CO2 into the atmosphere to travel and join us. Um, it will be international again. We will have the, the usual threads of how to tell environmental stories, the basic uh, things and examples of aware and care level but also we are hoping to have a thread that focuses on environmental justice, on the fact that the climate crisis will uh, inappropriately, uh, uh, unequally impact people who did not cause the problem and have been on the short end of everything in the past and they will, they will have it even harder. And what are, we, we must be aware 
we must care and what can we do? What can we dare to do to try to ensure social justice? So we've been contacting some of the past presenters and asked them to start thinking about workshops and presentations that they can do. The call for proposals is not formally out yet, but it will be coming soon. And we, we hope that people will have ideas for something they want to propose. And if they want to help us make it happen, we will appreciate their help. I, for one, am really looking forward to another Earth Up. I got so much out of the, the 2021. Um, in fact, the impetus to finally get this podcast up and running came from my attendance at Earth Up 2021 and meeting so many amazing people from around the world who are all working in this area and very creative and, and life-changing, system-changing, social-changing ways. So I will be tuning in. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you very much, Fran, and thank you to everyone who's tuned in today. Join us again on Restoring the Earth in two weeks' time for another interview. <music>